Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. As government expands, liberty contracts. It's funny, sometimes American journalists talk about how bad a country is because people are lining up for food. That's a good thing. Personally, I think he missed his time. Please clap. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilix, and today John Cochran on The Economy and Seth Mandel on, well, Trump and the Jews. So let's have ourselves a podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is the Ricochet Podcast, and it's number 461. Peter, Rob, how are you today? I'm going to let Don't, I, think, I, don't so, think too hard about that one, guys. It's a, it's a yeah, standard I, opening I, question. It is, but it's still, it still brings me up short. I, I don't know, really, because 461 now, I was fine until I heard that. And I thought, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm fine, too. It's beautiful. But I'm not fine because... My youngest started high school this week, and th- something happened. Something happened in America. And I'm not talking about the election of Donald Trump or the crudification of popular culture. What I'm talking about is summer is ending sooner these days. This is August. People should still yeah. be relaxed. We went, to, we went back to school after Labor Day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how you knew it. That's what Labor Day was all about. That's how right. it's supposed to be. The Jerry Lewis does the telephone, gets up in the chair, cries a little bit. He'll never walk <laughs> yeah. alone. And then it's then summer's over. Yeah, right. So. Well, people have been complaining about this for an awful long time. And here in Minnesota, they passed laws, I believe, that said that school shall start after the uh, after Labor Day, because otherwise it's if you go to the store after the Fourth of July, they have the school supplies up. There's this sort of relentless push to get right, the, right. the end of the summer in. And everybody fights it. And everybody knows that calendrical summer and, and meteorological summer are two different things. And actually, there's three months of summer that extend into September, but nobody believes that. We all right. know that when August ends, September begins, and with it, the fall. And Rob, even though you can't believe it's 461 podcasts that we've done, just think that's at least 700 segues that you've ruined. So let's. No, I didn't ruin. I know that's not true because I didn't ruin all of them. Well, speaking of ruining things, the New York Times has decided that America needs to have its face rubbed in its original sin in the 1619 Project, which they have framed as stating that the essence of the country, the essence of its history, everything about it goes back to slavery. 
Um, and uh, uh, bravo to the New York Times for bringing up the issue of slavery and race relations, which, of course, are completely absent from public discourse these days. Right. Uh, but, gentlemen, what do you think of this project? And what do you think, for example, of the Pulitzer people tweeting out that they are more than happy to provide the 1619 project to any school that wants to use this for their curriculum? Oh, okay. So there I would draw a line. If, if, if a school that, um, one of my, I would certainly be one of those parents who complained for this reason, as best I can tell, the history is accurate enough as far as it goes. What it drops out of the picture completely is the larger context. More slaves were imported to Brazil than to this country. Yeah. We participate, we participated in 1619 through the, through the time of independence and then even to this day we participate in anglo-saxon culture in all kinds of ways our law is anglo-saxon it was the british navy that ended slavery and in the constitution itself the a date was set they worked out excuse me i won't go on and on and on but slavery has been i'll make the point top soul makes slavery has been with has been part of the human condition from the very first moment that we have records it was universal, that is to say it took place in every culture, in every society, and in every place on earth, and where it ended was in our own culture. I stand with that very great man, Frederick Douglass, who said that the Constitution as written, permitting slavery, even though, as you will recall, the Constitution included an end date by which no more slaves could be imported into this country, but permitting slavery was a necessary scaffolding to construct the new country. This is this is a, an escaped slave, a, a former slave, Frederick Douglass, a, a necessary scaffolding. And as soon as the country could stand on its own, that scaffolding was removed. Well, that sounds and like a that, lot of snow. That is the story. That sounds like a lot of triggery, snowflakey stuff from the conservatives who are just freaking out about this because they can't stand to be anything to be said bad about America, which seems to be the response to criticism. Um, I'm sort of baffled exactly as to the New York Times. Well, I'm not baffled, but I'm I'm sort of amazed, really, that that that. The intention seems to be not to instruct the new people into the horrors of slavery and the impact and the effect that it had on the country, but to delegitimize the very American experiment itself by saying that foundationally it was corrupt and rotten and immoral. And therefore, the only exceptional claim that it has is being exceptionally bad, exceptionally hypocritical, exceptionally worthy of being replaced with some other system, which I'm sure our betters at the Times have brewing in the back of their head. Rob? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 for me, all these things come down to one thing, which is that one side thinks that everyone's stupid. And so they don't want, um, you know, the, the liberals always think that Americans are stupid. So we need to be careful what they see on Facebook because they're stupid. And they may, um, you know, they may, they may believe all that nonsense. They may, they may get everything wrong. Um, and so it's very important that we feed them very specific uh, sanitized or at least prepared, edited, carefully shaped uh, messages and stories because they're stupid. Uh, and, and, that, and the right feels the same way too here. It's like, well, well we think Americans are stupid. So if, if they read this thing, they might think it's all about – that all of America is all about uh, enslaved populations. I mean the problem is that they're both right, that a, a lot of Americans are dumb. And I think a lot of Americans – and I think I blame people on the right especially – don't know 
the history of slavery. And so all of these weird skirmishes are media skirmishes. Like, well, what is the message of the New York Times on its in its in its in the series of articles it's going to write? Rather than saying, okay, I know a lot about the American history, and I know, of course, that you know we were the ones who outlawed. It. I know, of course, that slavery exists today in Africa, right, um, <laughs> right now, today. Uh, all those things. I mean, every single thing that we worry about can be combated by simply knowing the facts. And we kind of sometimes don't, or we don't want to, it's too hard. So we're mad that we're, we, a lot of people on the right are mad that the New York Times is gonna write a piece that they're not gonna read, that other people are gonna read, and then think something about. And I believe we kind of need to, if we're gonna skirmish about this, we, we, we already have all the tools we need, and they are in the history. Uh, the, 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 what made me laugh about the New York Times thing is saying like how incredibly shallow and, um, unsophisticated and racist and kind of um, um, brutal it is to, to think that America was America's founding was about democracy. Uh, how, how shallow. America's founding is really about slavery. Well, actually, America's founding and America's development are about how those two things, in many ways, inter work together. Uh, people that wanted a certain uh, people that wanted a certain government and envisioned a certain government uh, were incredibly flawed. And they did make this uh, horrible compromise um, to get the country together because they, I think they knew that eventually the, the, the words we use to describe ourselves and to describe our country and our, and our, and our nation had to comport with the way the nation was being grown and built. And that happened, you know, less than a century later. Um, I mean, that, that, that seems like a long time, but really isn't actually it wasn't, what was it? Uh, uh, 60 years later, right? Right, right. Four score and seven. Yeah. In that range. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, it's, what's, what's it's amazing to me is that all these stories aren't about, aren't about people the way they live their lives as we all know it. I mean, depend, it doesn't really matter what your politics are. You live your life essentially the same way. You have essentially the same failures and, and, and uh, essentially the same weaknesses. We, we, uh, there's not, a, there's not a, a, an honest person in America who doesn't know exactly how the founders, and certainly the constitutional founders, came to that conclusion to allow slavery in the country. They, it, everyone knows how that happens. We do it all the time in our lives. So, you know. It's I, as if social, socialism and communism are never held accountable for their failures, right? It's always, it's never been tried sufficiently or it's not real socialism, et cetera. Et cetera. And America is always held accountable despite its successes. I mean, it, the, the standard to which we're held is extraordinary. In one sense, that's great right. because having set these high standards, we ought to be judged against them. But to deny human nature and to deny <clears throat> the fact that people of the past weren't perfect and did not create a perfect society right out of the gate is extraordinary. And I, I mean, the, the American exceptionalism is now the, the, the degree to which we are going to be judged against some, again, mythic goal that's hanging up there, which I think actually, given this crooked timber, we've done a pretty damn good job of reaching up to those ideals that were set so long ago. But you know, once again, if you want to abandon the Constitution, as both sides seem more than willing to do sometimes, I mean, you remember during the last election, we were being told that those who had inordinate love of the Constitution were vellum fetishists. Right. Okay, right. well, then at the end of the day, to use that phrase we all hate, <laughs> I think that's Rob's favorite phrase, um, we got nothing left then. Um, and where do we go from there? So it seems to me that 
1619 project, however intended, is another piece, uh, another shovelful trying to excavate the foundation of this country that I, I, I don't understand exactly. Uh, no, I do understand where it's coming from, but I don't understand exactly why so many people seem to be nodding along in agreement, not thinking about it, as if the foundation of this country is so strong, the bedrock so deep that mm-hmm. we can constantly undermine it and never worry about it tottering and falling. Mm-hmm. It, well, it, ever, I mean, ever, it, whatever it is, it isn't journalism. Yeah. Going back to no. 1619 is not exactly daily newspaper journalism. That's point number one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have three, three points. Point number two is the general expectation. The, you could call it an expectation. I think that's correct for most of the founders, or at least a hope. At a minimum, it was a hope. At the time the country was founded and the Constitution was ratified, was that slavery would die out. That did not happen in large part because of the development of the cotton gin. It turned out in the South after slavery was underway that you, it was economically useful to have large incoming flows of manual labor to harvest the cotton. So the South became economically tied to slavery and then at the North began to be, grow impatient. The abolitionist movement arises and the South becomes more and more brittle and insistent and ideological in its thinking about slavery. So the expectation is frustrated. What happens then? The country goes to war to end it. It is by, as a proportion of the population, no war since has cost as many American lives as the Civil War did. It didn't fade away, so we went to war over it. The final point I would make is this. This is so many arguments can just be not ended necessarily, but informed by looking at migration patterns. How many, how many people, how many Americans are attempting to leave this country for Africa? How many Africans right. are trying to come here? You know, really, that's what you need to know about the state of affairs today. There was a piece on NPR the other day, or maybe the Canadian version, or maybe National Public Radio. I don't know. There was a sonorous voice telling us of a show coming up, which is about <laughs> many African-Americans who are going to Ghana to learn agriculture and to start farms. And the uh, first person that they interviewed, this is just a preview of the show, said one of the uh, necessary things right at the beginning of these uh, missions is to tell people that it's not going to be like America. And I thought, Wow. Gosh. Wow. Really? That that would be news to who goes, who thinks that Ghana is going to be, uh, how deluded actually do you have to be to think that there's going to be water and internet and Walmart and everything else and clean, that the whole wonderful glory. Very. Yeah. You have to be, the answer is very. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, well, I would just say like we've all had that experience where you, um, you know, there's a young person in your life. Uh, or, a, you know, yeah, a teenager usually, and they've just learned a new thing, or a college student sometimes, and they've learned a new thing, a new fact, a new event, a new philosophy, mm-hmm. a new everything. And it's because it's new to them, they assume it's new to everybody. And so they say things to you like, Did, I mean, you may not know this, but and then they tell you something <laughs> right. that you've done. Yeah, I do know that. I've known it for a long right, time. Right, right, right. And that is sort of what, I mean, th- th- that is sort of what's interesting about this is that I believe that we are at the in a string, I mean, this is my optimistic view. Okay. My optimistic view is that people are dumb and they're dumb because 
uh, American history has been taught in the in, in, in an ass backwards way for the past cent, uh, uh, de- uh, generation, right? It's been taught in modules and nodes and uh, projects, and now we're going to talk about the old west and the native. All these weird, non-linear, non-specific <laughs> things, and so. American history is a strange kind of muddle, casserole of mystery for half the people. And I think yes. half the people yes. – and, and half the journalists in the New York Times, I think you put a gun to their head and said, Ex- uh, explain to me – I mean, pick, pick something from that, that's relevant to the topic. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What was Dred Scott? Mm. And they would look at you like, well, I know it was. I it was the pirate, was the pirate, pirate in Princess Bride, I think. Right. right. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you, I had this experience when I was talking to some very smart people who were uh, younger than I am, but they were smart and they went to fancy colleges. And the, one of the things they found outrageous about the U.S. Constitution was the three-fifths rule. It precisely. It, it valued yeah. them at three-fifths of their true humanity. Right. Which just shows how much cont- – in what exactly. contempt they held them in. But no, that was no, no. Well, abolitionists, anti-slavery activists wanted that to be zero. You right. shouldn't. Like, you should not be allowed to count slaves as right. the members of your population for the for the purpose of representation in Congress. Either they're citizens or they're not. And if they're not citizens, you don't get to count them. And Correct. the Southerners like, well, they're three fifths citizens because we need them. And that was the. I mean, and I, they looked at me like, what are you talking about? Like, it's look, it's math, which you don't know either, by the way, but. A lot of this is just this yearning in America, which I think is good, to know really how it all happened. And the truth is that you can't have anti-slavery without the uh, Judeo-Christian traditions. And Correct. Certainly the intellectual Judeo-Christian traditions of the founding of, the, of America. It doesn't mean – it does not mean that they were perfect. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you the, the whole idea of the of the of the of the Constitution isn't uh, we're, th- these are the ideals that we live up live up to the whole the, the guiding philosophy behind the, the Constitution is people suck and they they're gonna make terrible choices and they're gonna be awful and we got to make sure that 
there are enough laws in place, to, and some of them redundant laws in place, to keep that from ever happening. And the irony for the for the for the left is that they think, well, people suck, so the Constitution must suck. So let's get rid of it and now have the people control everything. It's like, well, well there's, there's, there's a lot to that. I mean, first of all, casserole of mystery should be the title of this podcast. I think. Okay. Thank you, Rob. That's a pretty so, good uh, phrase, right? Yeah. And secondly, you're right. People suck, but the idea, but the idea that people are perfectible is the idea that in a secular society fashion is what the left loves. The right knows that people are not perfectible, that we are flawed, and that's not going to change. But the left believes that with the right mechanisms, we can perfect man. So it's it's not enough to say people suck in general. What's necessary is to say these people suck in particular, and our groups, our in-groups are anointed by a history of victimhood and uh, downtroddenness and the rest of it right. that elevates them morally to the point where they now have the moral stature to redo society as they please. That's the, I mean, that's the tension that we're having that we've had in this country for X right. number of years. One right. one little if people, I don't know. I'm this is occurring to me for the first time. So if I get if if this if this turns out to be stupid, I know I can count on the two of you to say so. But George Washington just. Look at the life of George Washington, and there are a couple things you'll see. One is that he was very much a man of his time. Much of his fortune, many of his energies were devoted to acquiring land on the other side of the, of the Shenandoah Mountains and what the, the big race to settle what was then the far west, but of course we now think of as the Midwest. Acquire who had that land first, Peter? Who did he kill to of get course, it? Of course. The Indians did, but – you will discover throughout Washington's career and particularly as president over and over and over again, he's trying to restrain the settlers who are going in their helter skelter. He's trying to insist on establishing diplomatic relations with Indian tribes, treating them as sovereign nations and settling, settling with them for their land, paying them for it, establishing treaties. Now, of course we now understand that the tribes did not have the same conception of land rights that we had, that in all kinds of ways, attempting to impose legal standards on them just didn't make sense. But Washington, the man of his time, you can see the impulse to try to rise above what he understands are the rawer interests and ambitions of his time. He's trying to do right. Washington inherits land from his wife's family. She brings them, she brings a hundred slaves to the marriage. They are necessary to work Mount Vernon. He's never comfortable with this. And in his will, he sets free all the slaves. Again, you'd rather he set them free from the get-go. You'd rather all kinds of things. But you see a man of his time, he's struggling to pay his bills, to operate within the economic system in which he finds himself. And yet at the same time, he knows this is not right. And he does what he can to set it right mm -hmm. at the end of his life. I Again, he is far from a perfect person, but you can see it right there in one man's life. The, he is enmeshed right. in his time as we all are, but he's always struggling, not as hard as you might like, not as cleanly as you might like, but he's struggling to make things right. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, I was going to say that what's, what's interesting about all of this stuff is that the, the human element, right? The idea that a person struggles, a person tries, a person's not perfect, is the is is the story that we should be telling. Um, and I don't think we tell that. that. That's that's the great story of history. Yes, it is. Um, it, it isn't, uh, especially somebody who we 
who we know well. I mean, we we he, who is written about and talked about uh, around him in 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 a fairly in a fairly modern way. George Washington, we know so much about him. The story is really fascinating, and I don't think that we should be uh, as conservatives should be afraid of that story's being told. For for one one reason, just economically, I think it's very useful to remind people that a huge amount of America's agricultural wealth in the South um, was was uh, was predicated on on that kind of on on the enslavement of people, the, the taking of their labor, the yes. taking of their work, which is something that we as free market capitalists are absolutely dead set against, and that the and that freedom, the most important thing you have, your your rights, your free rights, your constitutional freedom, is the is the is the chief capital by which you are supposed to make your way in the world, and it just it's always it always surprises me that it's the left that seems obsessed with this topic, and the right that sometimes seems to hide from it because the the conclusion of 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 a, of a thorough investigation of slavery its evils and its wrongs leads you to freedom to free markets to free people to the judeo christian tradition of inquiry and uh and and change that no other society ha- has had had or has had since so but these I things, re- I mean, these things require, as we've been saying here before, and at least we're talking about 1619 and, and, and letting people know that there was such a year that history did not start anew in 2008. And it's yeah, necessary absolutely. to go back and and, and and look at the soil from which all of this sprung. But unfortunately, the more anxious and excitable people amongst us are the ones who want change now and want utopia now. And that can be achieved by a certain set of ideas. You had the Red Guard back in the days of the communist of communist China, right? Who were who only believed that you could purify society if you extirpated every single bourgeois element. So right. if they found the wrong pattern of China or or uh, you know the wrong color uh, of finery in your house somewhere, you had to be taken out and a sign had to be put around your neck and you had to apologize to everybody and mouth the right words because they wanted to remake it all now. So at least the New York Times is telling us uh, that it's that that history is important. It's unfortunately they're giving us a version of history that's uh, that's not entirely correct. But still, I prefer a historical perspective that's flawed to the idea that Mao had, where the great helmsman was going to tell everybody how things were going to go and let the worst elements of society remake right. it. And speaking of helmsmen, helmsman shave oh, wow. cream. Oh, nice. There you go. I, did, nice. I was wondering how you were going to do that, and that's brilliant. And it was right in front of my face. Go ahead. Yeah, I, it literally was. It literally was. Speaking of your face, that ruggedly handsome face of Rob Long, would you like to look as ruggedly handsome as Rob? Would you like to look as sharp as Peter Robinson's wit? Do you want to shave as smooth as Mel Torme after he's had a nice minty lozenge? Well, then, Helmsman, Helmsman Shaves Cream, it's for you. It's intentionally designed for men who demand the best from the products they use. You can do no better than Helmsman, frankly. It's scented with essential oils. It's gluten-free. It's cruelty-free. There's no hipster category they haven't considered, okay? And since it's designed and manufactured exclusively in the USA, you do not have to worry about any big, beautiful tariffs ever. Find us at bethehelmsman.com and use the promo code RICOCHET checkout for a discount that's only reserved for thoughtful center-right listeners who want to take life by the helm. Plus, this is great. Helmsman was founded by a Ricochet member, one of us, 
So support a fellow conservative who's making a great product. That's bethehelmsman.com. Use the promo code Ricochet at checkout. And our thanks to Helmsman for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. James, would you like to hear about a man who shaved with Helmsman for the first time this why, very why, morning? Why a testament would be would be great. Yes, please. It is. You, I, I picked up Helmsman to use it this morning for the first time and felt the same way. The both of you will understand what I mean. I felt exactly the same way I feel when I receive a book that a friend has written. Oh, good. I, is it is it really going to be any good or am I just <laughs> going to be, have to find myself forced to say so? Helmsman is terrific oh it's it's thicker than this uh, i i i use the stuff the fizzy stuff that ordinarily ordinarily that sort of fizzes out of the bottle half gel half foam mm -hmm. and helmsman is much thicker and it, the shave was beautiful and smooth and it feels kind of as though i, I it feels kind of as like a skin treatment almost i don't understand all the chemical components but it was a good shave and it was really comfortable and it still feels come still feels sort of soothing right now and i am telling the truth i'm relieved to be able to say i thought you were going to say that you know like getting a book that a friend has written that the first thing you did with helmsman was check the index to see if your name was mentioned <laughs> i would have done if it had an index there you go. Helmsman, the shaving cream that doesn't need an index. And now we welcome to the podcast John Cochran, Rosemarie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also a research assistant at the National Bureau of Economic Research and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can read his indispensable blog, The Grumpy Economist, and we'll put a little link to that on the Ricochet site. Uh, John, we've been hearing a lot about inverted yield curves and bonds and economies, and nobody seems to know what that means, except they are being told recession is imminent. So where are we going with this economy? Are we headed to another recession? Uh, interesting question. Um, it's not as clear. Recessions are very hard to forecast. And something needs to go wrong, usually financial, before we head into a recession. The inverted yield curve is a, a correlation, long-term bonds being lower than short-term bonds. It's worked well in the past. But you have to understand what the causes are. In the past, the, most of the inverted yield curves have been because the Fed tightened really hard, and that was the thing that caused the recession. That's not happening right now. So I would take that, uh, that signal, that correlation to the big grain of salt. John, Peter Robinson here. Why do, do is a recession, is, is it always the case that after some unknown period of growth, we will have a recession? Why do recessions happen in the first place? Is it always because the government screws something up or is there simply a moment when every economy is exhausted and regathers? Um, that is a deep question, and frankly, that's one of those things that after all these years, economists aren't all that sure about. I think the current consensus, though, is that the economy trundles along just fine until something bad happens. So expansions don't die of old age, is, is the adage. Uh, they need a shock. They need something bad to happen, usually financial, sometimes political, uh, before we really kick into a serious recession. And what would you make of the argument that the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal has been making, which is that Trump's trade policy has been kicking the the economy again and again and again, that that's, that's the bad thing that's happening and it's self-inflicted? Uh, yeah, our trade policy is a clear self-inflicted wound. Um, it is, however, at its current level, um, 
much as I, I would love to say it's the big problem because I hate trade, trade restrictions, uh, it's a minor irritant. You know, uh, residential zoning restrictions and occupational licensing restrictions and overregulation, they do the same kind of damage as, as trade. Uh, one good rule of thumb is that the damage of tariffs is the square of the tariff rate. So, in fact, small tariffs, though annoying, don't really hurt the economy that much. I, I hate to say that. Uh, now, the, the danger of a big all-out trade war, uh, I think, is is one that um, is, is weighing on people's minds, the uncertainty factor. But we've had uncertainty with Trump policy for a long time. So uh, I, I think it's a danger, but not one that's hard to really point to and say, boy, that that's imminently going to cause something bad. And I've got one more question, if I may, John. I know I've got two colleagues on the line who are eager to jump in here. But if you were in the White House, bear with that thought for just a moment. I know I know you love academia. But if you were in the White House and the, the thought was, wait a minute, we have some difficulties here with the economy and we're facing re-election in 2020, what what levers does the administration have to pull, if any, to keep the economy strong or re- give us well, some new boost of growth? What, what could they do if they wanted to? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, the right kind of economic policy is not one that tries to jigger what's going on this quarter or next quarter and provide a little more stimulus here and a little bit less there. Uh, Let's um, set a a strategy for long-term economic growth, put it in place and let it rip. And that would involve um, the the second round of tax reform, uh, be much more serious about cleaning up our tax code, keep going on the deregulatory reform efforts, um, uh, stabilize trade, um, you know, get, just set things in motion and let it rip. And that, that would lead us to an era of unparalleled growth. Hey, uh, John. Up long. Uh, thanks for joining us. So, I mean, along lines, Peter said, I mean, uh, Fed tries to cut interest rates. Uh, they're pretty low, not much to do. The, the uh, national debt is about a trillion dollars now. So, um, debt, all, all debt spending is hard. All of the easy levers, um, don't seem like there's much, you know, more slack in those. All that's left is what you said are the hard levers: uh, deregulation, maybe some de- some some uh, targeted tax reform. All of those things seem harder and harder to do with a government that is as um, divided and as dysfunctional as this one. So, if if we do start seeing the signs of a recession. Um, what 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 are what are the practical things any president or a president can do that don't require, um, you know, <laughs> making peace with Nancy Pelosi? Put it that way. Yeah, well, you have um, one good point that you're you're implicitly making. Our economy is not now suffering from deficient demand. Uh, so to think about things in terms of stimulus 
with a 3.9% unemployment rate just doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not where we right. are. It's about cleaning out the, uh, you know, the things that are holding back the supply and not self-inflicting wounds like starting trade mm-hmm. wars. Um, and, you know, there is a, a stable, you know, first of all, don't cause more trouble. Uh, right. Try to have a predictable set of policies, clear long-run goals. And then, you know, yeah, work on bipartisan consensus to try to fix the things that need to be fixed. But if you, um, but, well, we you need know, to get away from this short run. What can we do this this month right. to boost the economy a little bit? That's just the wrong way to think about economic policy, and that induces more uncertainty. But is that because the the markets demand us to, to, to think that way? I mean, you know, uh, the, the 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 big fear fact now is the uh, inverted yield curve that you know people say oh well if the yield curve is inverted that means a, a recession is going going to happen um so who are we who are we really trying to educate here is it a market that is terrified because like the, the economy seems to be good but no one really knows why or is it a a general consensus in washington that the best way to solve any economic problem is to open the spigots and uh with 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 federal spending and uh an incredibly loose fed yeah, and, I mean, the, the debt problem is uh, – that's another one of those things that needs to be addressed uh, sooner rather than later. You know, I think if the U.S. embarked on a steady um, pro-growth, long-run economic policy, the markets would absolutely take off. Uh, the markets are reacting to the uncertainty about what's going to happen now. And, you know, geopolitical uncertainty, what if these things blow up in China? That, that's the kind of event that I think would spark the next recession. Um, Political things go wrong, financial things go wrong, and, and then the recession would come. Right. Okay. So if you had to pick one, one or two of your dream uh, of, of, of uh, dream reforms, economic reforms, that um, you think with some pushing and some shoving and some horse trading uh, may actually get through and get enacted in as close to a way as possible, uh, you know, in as close to the ideal way as possible, which two would you pick? I mean, if we're all going to row in a direction and pull in a direction, which direction should we pull, be pulling in? What, what are the two top uh, specific reforms you would make if you could? Uh, well, the, the problem with growth is it's like Mari Kondoing. We, we need to Mari Kondo our uh, national economy, <laughs> our, our legal system, and our, our regulation and our tax code. And as Marie Kondo will tell you, it's, it's not about let's go in and do the kitchen. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it all needs uh, careful, bipartisan uh, thinking through what the long-run goals are and getting there. So, you know, fix Social Security, fix Medicare, fix health care, um, fix the tax code. So if you kind of set up this is where we're going, I think uh, it might be easier. But those are political questions. And, you know, what the dem- an election is coming. Um, I right. think the moment when you're coming to an election, is not the moment to try to get something big done. It's the moment <laughs> right. to say, here is our goal. Here's right. where we want to take the country after the election. Uh, and then that, I think, would forge a, a, a Congress able to do part, bipartisan compromise. Well, unfortunately, the Maria Kondo thing says throw it away if it doesn't give you joy. What gives the Democrats joy is more regulation, <laughs> more confiscation of properties and open borders. So if we do have a slowdown coming into a, a, an election, on one hand, you've got the Republicans saying things like gold standard, and you have the Democrats saying things like, no, no, we're going to give everybody more of everything. How do you possibly, how do the Democrats hope 
to tell us that a, that a recession can be combated by more government and more population fighting for a diminishing number of jobs. Well, those issues that, uh, you know, the debate going on within the Democratic Party is not really about recession. It's about Green New Deal and, and a, you know, 20 year government takeover of the economy. But there, too, it's, it's not a united front. There are very many reasonable Democrats who are appalled at where the left wing of their party is taking them. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, that's the debate to be had. John, Peter here. All right. So. It, I asked a moment ago what the administration could do, and you very nicely pushed back and said we, they ought not to be looking for levers for short term. Here's the question, though. I'll, overwhelmingly, our listeners are going to be in the same position that the people questioning you are in. There's nothing we can do one way or the other, except next year we're going to be asked to cast a vote. Can you, if you're looking at, if the single question is which side is likely to be better for the economy in the long run. And you have already instructed us to think only about the long run. And I'm setting aside questions of who's coarsening the culture. I'm setting aside questions of the court. I'm setting aside questions of green. I'm just asking for the growth, long run growth of the economy. Would you recommend voting for Donald Trump who looks certain to be the Republican nominee or would you re recommend the Democratic nominee? Or can you not make up your mind without knowing who the nominee okay. is? How do you handle that one? Or don't for, don't forget the Libertarians and the Green Party too. Uh, I'm not oh. going to make a partisan political recommendation of that sort. Uh, what I hope is, you know, we need to see what uh, comes out of the discussion, uh, what what uh, the president decides he wants to campaign on, and and how this great debate within the Democratic Party comes out of, of what are they uh, promising us to go? Is it, is it going to be the, the Green New Deal or is it going to be sort of the, the, the centrist uh, um, uh, coalition that was there before? Well, it'll be fun to watch. Well, John, let's end with this. Uh, trade wars, which we're told are good, but a lot of people seem to think that perhaps it's going to, in the long run, just be a long, grinding, knockdown drag out that doesn't really seem to benefit us unless we get something out of it. What is the situation with China right now? Is China actually not as strong as some people might think because their economy is more brittle? They don't have as many arrows in the quiver and they need us more than we need them. How do you think the China situation is going to play out? Well, well first, they need us versus we need them. Can we, quote, win the trade war is idiotic. I mean, the whole the whole trade war is, is a bad idea. Adam Smith figured that out in 1760. And we're still fighting over it. Um, China is not so far on bigger. China is a lot more vulnerable than people think. Uh, remember, it's still a very poor country. It's uh, less than a fifth of the GDP per capita of the United States. Uh, and they're facing some serious problems in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, can the Communist Party stay in charge through a growth slowdown? Uh, uh, so, so don't overstate it. Uh, but the right answer for us would was and continues to be to uh, the carrot, not the stick. Why are we choosing to create a geopolitical confrontation rather than to try to work with all of our allies to say, hey, guys, you want to join the international club? Here's here's the right way to behave. Uh, it is just not in our interest to create another Cold War when we don't have to. 
Well, what do you say to those people who would insist that China will never be enticed by an international coalition to change their behavior on intellectual property, for example, that they can get away with it because they figure they can get away with it, Uh, that actually something other than – go on. I think we got very overly excited about this intellectual property business first, and second – uh, slapping self slapping uh, tariffs on which hurt us more than they hurt them is a kind of a silly way to go about it. Uh, you know, intellectual property is a strange thing. We're not all that excited about defending the drug company's intellectual property to charge whatever they want in the United States. Uh, so, uh, just why we're so excited about that in China is an open question. But uh, let's let's not delve too hard into it. I think the basic principles of free trade are are still there and. Um, uh, even with a lot of the intellectual property stuff could be worked out much more easily than than causing this, uh, you know, this trade war that might well lead us into a recession or to just a period of slower growth. John, we know you're on the road and you're heading somewhere and probably want to get back to it. So we thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Safe travels and we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you, too. John, have a Thanks, high John. time up the mountains. <laughs> I have the feeling that there might Thanks. be some, you some, you know, there might be some zesty commentary in the comment section on the ricochet on this particular one when it comes to China and tariffs and intellectual property and the rest of it. Um, zesty indeed, lemon fresh, lemon fresh like those good cleaners oh. that you use on the visit. Oh. oh, stop it! Oh, stop oh. it, you guys! Come on, that was a cheap one. That was as yeah, easy. That, that was, was a cheap one. I, just, I, that just that was nothing. That was we're we're sign, you're getting a participant. You get a participant this time. You get a participation trophy for that. (laughs) I am trying to move the show along rather than wallow in indulging myself here for the sake of a bit. I am trying to move merchandise. I'm trying to sell something. What's more, something that everybody needs because your house probably has fingerprints. It probably has surfaces that need to be clean. It probably has all kinds of stuff that you like to keep nice and zesty lemon fresh, right? But sometimes you don't know what those chemicals are. It's probably not a lemon. It's probably something with 17 syllables that simulates a simulacrum of a lemon essence. Well, it was all purpose cleaners that mom used to use. Remember those that, that would just make your eyes water full of harmful chemicals, frankly. They belong to everything from respiratory diseases to cancer. Yeah, you know, you don't need toxins to have a clean home. Not when you go to Grove Collaborative. Now, Grove Collaborative is the online marketplace that delivers all natural home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. Grove takes the guesswork out of going green, if you wish. Every grove.co, that's the website, grove.co. And every one of the products is guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet. So you can save time, you know, not reading these confusing labels and figuring out what these chemicals are. What I like about them is that they have all sorts of products. They've got stuff that you may not have heard of. And they've got name brand products as well, like Mrs. Myers, which is my preferred line for cleaning the, the house and the kitchen. It's great stuff. It smells great and it works. I don't care really if something might not be the best for the planet if it doesn't work it's gotta work i mean remember what we all went through when they changed the uh soaps and suds and all of a sudden the dishes didn't come out the same way or your dishwasher no you want something that works and that's what grove has products that work you don't have to shop multiple stores or search endlessly online to get all the natural goods you need for you and your family just go to grove.co over half a million families who trust Grobe Collaborative make their homes happier and healthier. And shipping's fast, shipping's free on your first order. For a limited time, Ricochet listeners who go to grove.co 
slash ricochet and place an order of $20 or more. You'll get free five-piece cleaning set for Mrs. Meyer. And, you know, (laughs) trust me. If nothing else, it's the best smelling product you'll ever have for your house, Mrs. Meyer. And Grove, uh, that's a $30 value. So order of $20 or more, free five-piece cleaning set for Mrs. Meyer. But only if you go to grove.co slash ricochet. That's grove.co slash ricochet. Our thanks to Grove for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Seth Mandel, editor of the Washington Examiner and the husband of Ricochet editor and Lady Brain podcaster, co-host Bethany. You can follow him at Twitter, at Seth A. Mandel, and we'll have that, of course, right there in the Ricochet website. Seth, I, can't, I, I don't know if this week, if you're a, a beta cuck or a, a Trumpy uh, Trump <laughs> face. So we had, uh, guess that, get this, the president said something and or tweeted something, and people reacted, and here we are to hash that over. This time it was anti-Semitism, and apparently the guy who moved the embassy to Jerusalem and has Jewish relatives and the rest of it, uh, has been accused of saying old tropes and the rest of it. I'm not talking about Omar this week, but we're talking about Trump's anti-Semitism. Tell us what was going on and what you saw, what you said about it. Well, Trump's uh, Trump's comments were about uh, the the idea that Jews are uh, essentially bad Jews for for not taking the threat of anti-Semitism and the threat of anti-Zionism masking anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism being dressed up as anti-Zionism more seriously. And the words that he used were, look, in typical Trump fashion, he used the worst worst possible phrasing. I mean, he does this pretty much every time. Um, And he used the word disloyalty. And you you don't want to use that word. We've had uh, debates on dual loyalty especially concerning Omar and Tlaib, who who have each had uh, made statements about Jews and dual loyalty, and they've each had their own cycles of outrage about it. So there was there was no way that Trump was going to you know sort of get away with that. But the larger problem was that um, what what Trump what it revealed was not um, that Trump uh, has a as a has ill will toward the Jewish community. It revealed that he, uh, well, first of all, Trump buys into anti-Semitic stereotypes, but as a philo-Semite in a way, you know, he he thinks they're compliments. <laughs> and so I, on Twitter, I likened his comments to Peter Griffin from Family Guy, who in the, the famous Family Guy episode, it sings a song called I Need a Jew. And his son is struggling in school. And so he tries to have him converted to Judaism. And, you know, so this is the sort of thing that it's also a lot of times you hear it, uh, you hear it a lot in hip hop. There's actually a really funny video on YouTube that's basically a supercut of all rappers bragging about their Jewish lawyers. So there's, there's, there's certain, and Trump comes, again, Trump comes from the entertainment world, in part, the real estate world right. and the entertainment world. And so he sort of has this, outlook. So he's a kind of Peter Griffin character, this cartoonish, you know, believes in the Jew in the stereotypes about Jews, but he thinks he's complimenting you when he tells you you're good with money. So Seth, Peter here. <laughs> Peter here. I'm Trump. Okay. I'm okay. Donald Trump. Let me talk as Donald Trump and then you tell me, answer my question. Okay. So I'm Donald Trump. Seth, I have done more for Israel than any president you could name, with the possible exception of Harry Truman, who recognized the state of Israel a couple hours after it was declared. And 
the Jewish vote in America for Republicans peaked with Ronald Reagan. I've done so much more than Ronald Reagan. I've been so pro-Israel. I've moved the embassy to Jerusalem. I make one pro-Israel statement. Have, why, why, where's my Jewish support in this country? What's going on? So the answer is twofold. The first part of the answer is that the Jews does not equal Israel. So the the problem with uh, your statements, Mr. President, yes, <laughs> um, is that the 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 subtext is that Jews are being grouped into uh, immigrant groups. You know, it's like saying, "Oh, well, the Italians they've really uh, made a place for themselves here in this country." That that that's how <laughs> right. when he talks about Jews, that's how it sounds like he says things to Jewish uh, groups when he references Bibi Netanyahu, he says, you're prime minister. And he has a way of talking in which he- It's uh, unbelievably condescending is what it is. It's right? very condescending, but it also assigns a kind of ownership of this country abroad. And so, you know, we're not actually immigrants. We're we're just regular Americans. This is the religion we follow, uh, but we're, we're, we're regular Americans. Americans like everybody else. So the first thing is that it, it suggests that Jews are- visitors of some kind and that you know if you if 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 you uh you know all the things that he does for Israel are quite highly appreciated by a lot of people even people who won't be voting for him but you, the problem with the statement is not um you know if he gets accused of being anti-Israel or you know knifing Bibi Netanyahu in the back or something then he's going to say I've done all this for Israel and Barack Obama did the same thing you know he got he 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 would get criticism over his treatment of Israel and especially Netanyahu and he would say well wait a second I signed the memorandum of understanding that right. increased aid I, I you know we've been working with Israel on iron dome that's intercepting missiles being shot at them from Gaza and all this stuff you know that's that's a relevant defense because you know are you Hey, you're being bad to Israel. No, I'm I'm actually being good to Israel, and here's why. And the way Trump right. does it is, uh, you're you know you're being bad to Jews. No, I'm being great to Israel, and it's you know it's sort of there's a there's a disconnect. The second thing is that American Jews, the the uh, American Jews do care about Israel a lot, and you know the the old joke, of course, in in the in the Jewish community, we often joke that if only American Jews were as supportive of Israel as evangelical Christians, but you know, so that he's probably hearing those types of comments inside his administration, and because he's Trump, he doesn't really have a filter and know not to actually say them publicly. But um, but the truth is that what's behind that joke is not the idea that. American Jews don't care about Israel. It's that there's a certain bar that you have to clear. And uh -huh. one of the great things about America and its relationship with Israel is that America has been the, the American political establishment has been generally pro-Israel for so long that parties, major parties don't put up candidates who scare people. You know, if if I think in the future this is bound to change. I think that, you know, the way the Democratic Party is going in the future, they will put up a candidate like, um, you know, so, somebody who tolerates this sort of thing and changes the conversation like AOC or maybe even a Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar type. But that's in the future. In the past, they nominated people like, uh, you know, as long as your last name was Clinton, that you got, you know, got nominated basically. And then Obama also was of the, of the left, and you know, he had some 
red flags, but it, it was not, he didn't have the sort of history where he was just going around making these awful comments. So the, the bar for being pro-Israel is low, not because people don't care about it, but because both parties have historically in the last you know half century or so really basically cleared it with ease and they don't put up people who you are afraid of. When, when Obama ran for president, he went to, you know, he, Obama spoke to APAC during the election year and he said, Jerusalem must remain undivided. You know, e- even though there were things that concerned the American Jewish community about him, he, he had, you had a candidate going through the same motions as everybody else. So, you know, the standard is not, you know, do you, do you give, do you move the embassy to Jerusalem? The standard is, okay, you're, you're, you know, you consider Israel a close ally and you'll have its back. Now on to the domestic, once you clear that bar, it's all about domestic issues. And that bar is generally easily cleared. Hey, Seth, it's Rob Long. Thank you for joining us. So, um, we, we, we know who the we know who the enemies of Israel are in politics, right? It's the three you mentioned. It's Ilan Omar, it's Shitz Lieb, maybe AOC, maybe not so much, but, but but at least those two are 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 problematic to say the least in the Democratic Party on, on their support of Israel. But what about the Jewish Americans who are part of the um, uh, BD, uh, you know, the, uh, um, ban, disinvest, sanction, uh, uh, movement. It seems to me that when American politics changes, it's not going to change because of some, uh, you know, uh, leader of a party in a general election, but it's going to change because the calculation that you just mentioned, which is that you have to, there was a low bar. If you want some Jewish, some Jewish American support, you have to be basically in favor of Israel. It seems like that is going to disappear from the side of the Jewish American voter first, or am I getting it wrong? Yeah, well, I don't know what the order is going to be, but yes, in, in the future, and maybe even the near future, this is going to change. There are going to be high-profile candidates who uh, I mean, who don't don't share but, the affinity. They, and so, the reason they don't have to is because the Jewish voter that they've been courting, that they don't want to lose, um, is no longer supporting Israel. It seems like Israel's support among Jewish Americans is waning. Yeah, well, it, it, it is and it isn't. It, it, it's not waning to the extent that a lot of people think it is. The, the, they're, they're, the crisis that everybody keeps predicting or saying is here in, in Israel diaspora relations isn't mm-hmm. here yet. But um, but the problem with what you're seeing is that, and I, I've talked about this a, a, a bit in the past uh, uh, on on Twitter the other day, trying to explain that basically, when you look at the way when you look at um, Pew Research surveys on religious and political attitudes for various religious groups, and you look at other surveys of the Jewish community, what you essentially find, and Badia Angar Sargon has written this up at the the forward uh, quite well. But what you uh, what you find is that you have two different opinions of what it means to be Jewish, and so American Jews have increasingly identified their Jewishness with liberal politics or left right. politics, what they consider liberal progressive politics, whichever word you want to use, left politics. And so you see the, you know, Jews against ICE 
protesting the immigration right. stuff. You right. see, you basically see, and you see, if not now, which is an, a, you know a, an incredibly toxic organization that's trying to destroy right. support for Israel. And you see them show the they are they. You see the tokens show up. But I guess what I would say is, like for the first forty years of of the uh, of the Israeli of the state of Israel, um, uh, everything all all. all Policy, and American foreign policy, and, and sort of, and I think I, I, I'm assuming Jewish American position and, and and feelings about Israel were based on one binary thing: uh, will it exist or not? Should it exist or not? And it was every single question was an existential question because it was surrounded on all sides by enemies who were invading it constantly. Um, and now that that has changed, I think, or maybe the perception of that has changed. The 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 most strident anti-Israel voices that I hear. That aside from the the you know the anti semites, are Jews, Jewish Americans who are part of a BD whatever you know by a BDS um, movement that seems like it's based entirely on the idea that not only is Israel not facing an existential threat, it is the aggressor, and that is a remarkable change in American politics. Well, it has, it, it has no moral standing anymore because it is a colonial occupying power. And as, right. as liberalism becomes leftism, that, that means that the narrative has to deprivilege Israel uh, because uh, people are being oppressed. So, but, but, don't, but don't you, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to, I'm really trying to ask is I think that, and maybe I'm wrong, my, my view is, Seth, that, um, that the support for Israel is going to first turn and turn hard amongst American Jews who no longer feel that that nation, um, first of all, is under any threat, and second of all, is it speaks to them, uh, as they be, certainly as they become more secular. Uh, does, that, does, that, does that worry you, or am I just overreacting? Well, it's not that you're overreacting and it's worrisome, but I do think you have the order backwards. What you said is true about Israel being the no longer being the underdog. And for the first 20 years of its existence until 1967, until the Six Day War, Israel was viewed as an un, universally as the underdog, the plucky underdog. And then uh, then came the post-67 world, the world of the occupation, et cetera. And what what, what took the reason it was a lagging indicator is because you ha- it, it took a generation uh, to produce people who were born in an era when Israel's survival was not considered something they had to worry about. And my parents and grandparents would wake up in the morning sometimes uh, hoping that Israel was still there. And that's not, you know, and, and so if you live during that time and you saw the transition, you might, you, you don't feel it quite as strongly. If you were born after that time, you only know one Israel and that is powerful. And the reason I think, but, but to your question about the, the order of things, what's happening is that, uh, America, going back to the point about American Jews, uh, associating and with and identifying their Jewishness with liberalism um, has put them in a position where they have bought into intersectionality, right? Which, you know, so Jews of, you know, if their skin color is light, they're not a minority of Jews, but they're, you know, the left just considers them white and therefore an oppressor and all these things. Basically, intersectionality puts Jews at the bottom rung or near the bottom rung. And um, that revelation is happening now. And so Jews have bought Amer- a lot of American Jews have bought into this the idea that leftism, progressive values that this is this is Judaism, and so they look at it as you look at a religion. And now 
it's sort of being thrown back at them um, by saying, you know, you bought into all this. And now also, by the way, Israel is evil and, you know, Jews are causing problems and all that stuff. And it's forcing them to think they're rethinking not just the political party, but they're re- they're being forced to confront their entire conception of their religious and political identity, which are twinned. And so going forward, you're going to see a, a lot of people refuse to believe their lying eyes because they have they are so invested in remember that this political movement is one that is centered on their definition of justice. So they believe that justice is on their side and everybody else is evil. And now they have to sort of hold, you know, when confronted with this, well, maybe your entire ideology is pretty defective because it's bad for the Jews and you're a Jew. So a lot of people don't want to believe that. So I don't think it's going to change first with Jewish Americans. I think it's changing first with non-Jewish Americans. And I think Jewish Americans are being confronted with a choice about how to react and interpret that. And it is accelerated by American Jews who don't believe their lying eyes and don't want to believe that the entire value system they've bought into as their new religion is bad. And so some of them will be high profile tokens for the ones who are really trying to change the conversation. But the ones who are really trying to change the conversation, if you look at Congress, are not uh, young Jewish uh, members of Congress. It's Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, it's it's that, and that and that confronts Jews, progressive Jews who supported them with this idea of justice, mm-hmm. with having to make a choice. Seth, I hate to cut up a conversation for the sake of time, but I am the chosen one, and I will do it now. <laughs> thanks, buddy. We'll see you. We'll see you on the internet here and there. And uh, thanks, thanks for joining Seth. us on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you, guys, so much. Thanks, yeah. Seth. Take uh, care. The problem is, of course, is that the you know, intersectionality, as we all know, means eventually things collide and people have to make choices. I mean, if if if, if Jewish Americans, if leftist Americans are going to say that we have to privilege the Palestinians because in the colonial dynamic, they're the ones who have the most moral authority, then what do you do when all of a sudden the Palestinian authorities ban LBGTQ, et cetera, demonstrations and the rest and show themselves to be utterly illiberal on the matters that count much to the left. I, right. I, I, there's an intellectual bloodshed and butchery that's going to take place there is going to be interesting to watch. And speaking of butchery. Oh, oh, oh. nicely done. I wouldn't know. It's horribly done, but we have to get to it. Um, well, you have a stake. You have a stake in this. So I understand. <laughs> Ouch. Well done. Well, well, roast, I won't roast you any well further. Done. Oh, that was, yeah, that was rare in its term of, being bad. Hey, Butcher Box. Butcher Box. They make it easy to get high quality, humanely raised meat you can trust. Every month, Butcher Box delivers 100% grass fed and grass finished beef, free range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild Alaskan salmon directly to your door. Shipping is free. The incredible quality of Butcher Box meals starts with a commitment to humanely raised animals that are never given antibiotics or added hormones. By taking out the middleman, you know, those grocery stores, and purchasing direct from a collective of ranches, Butcher Box is able to buy meat at a lower cost and pass those savings on to you. You can choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box so you get exactly what you and your family love. 
Now, here's how ButcherBox works. Select from four curated boxes, including a mix of high-quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, rearranged organic chicken, heritage breed pork, or customize your own box. You get exactly what you want. Each box comes with at least 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individually sized meals. The meat is frozen at the peak of freshness in individual vacuum-sealed packs, delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping. And might I add this little container that you can use for shopping elsewhere when you want to keep something cold. By taking out that middleman, that grocery store, and purchasing directly from the ranches, ButcherBox is able to buy meat at a lower cost and pass the savings to you. Price? Just $129 a month, which works out to less than $6 a meal. And shipping, did I mention? That's free nationwide, besides Alaska and Hawaii. I love this stuff because I usually have this little preparation I do for my steak with butter and a little of the seasoning and the rest of it to prep it before I grill it. I, I, I don't do any of that with butcher box steaks because they're so good just as they're delivered to you. Right now, butcher box is delivering new members two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon for free. Plus $20 off the first box. Two pounds of ground beef, two packs of bacon for free, and $20 off the first box. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ricochet. Enter the promo code ricochet at the checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash ricochet. Or enter the promo code ricochet at your checkout, where new members get two pounds ground beef, two packs of bacon for free, and $20 off their first box. And our thanks to ButcherBox for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, gentlemen, before we leave... Um, Apparently, the worst thing to happen in the world and the continuing proof that Donald Trump is poisoning everything around us is that uh, Sean Spicer is uh, going to be on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Never mind. I don't care. Um, speaking I of me, I, I, I really don't. And I really don't. But a lot of people are, are aggravated by this because it just shows that absolutely everything is being corrupted. I, I mean, I see people weeping and shrieking and rending their garments on Twitter because they can't leave the house practically. They can't look at golf without thinking that Trump has played golf. They can't look at tennis without thinking that he said something bad about it. I mean, it's just the extent to which he has burrowed into these people's minds like the worm that they put in Chekhov's ear in uh, Star Trek too. Oy. Anyway, The Economist, speaking of meat, has said that more poor, this is their tweet, more poor people are eating meat around the world. That means they will live longer, healthier lives, but it's bad news for the environment. Boy, I'm glad I don't get The Economist anymore. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, I, yeah, except that I, I, except that's true. If you believe that stuff, it's true. That's the one thing that no one ever talks about is that actually it's uh, it's agriculture, I think, that contributes the most to of, of the you know greenhouse gases or something. Um, cattle raising. It, the, the, the problem with it, like, they keep changing all the terms. So sometimes uh, climate Climate change is, is crucial, so I have to drive, you know, an electric car or uh, or walk. Sometimes it's I have to turn my thermostat down. Sometimes, I mean, all sorts of reasons for me to change my behavior, um, and they use it for whatever they want to use it. The, the idea that more people are eating meat around the world is a is a sign that that poor people are getting richer around the world. Right, that is a great right. thing, and there's zero evidence. In fact, there's ma massive counter evidence to suggest that prosperity is good Correct. for the environment. Correct. And, and <laughs> it just—they just keep changing. Whatever it's whatever they don't like that day is the thing that's causing global warming. That's just, that's and and, I, and eventually people just turn it off. You can hear the you hear your brain. I mean, you read that tweet, you hear your brain just go click. I'm I've got something to say on this just because I want to hear how Rob responds. There are startups here in Northern California. For all I know, they are there are many of them elsewhere as well. There are startups 
dedicated to the proposition that we can grow meat without animals. Yeah, yeah. And I have not tasted any of this product, but uh, I know people who have, and they come away shaking their heads and saying, hmm, tasted just like chicken. Hmm, tasted just like steak. So what I want to know from Rob and James. Oh, from James. You want to know from me, too. I was wondering no, if Butcher Blocks was introducing James Lilac's brand chopped liver. <laughs> do go on. I want to know whether this is a sacrilege, the very idea is a sacrilege, or if it's one of these arguments that we should be making. See, prosperity, technology. If you're serious about the economy, let prosperity rip. Let's hmm. start with Rob. Well, look, I mean, I think you should be allowed to eat anything you want to eat. I don't want to eat that. Um, <laughs> and I think okay. that probably re I think it's probably true that we raise the way we raise cattle in this country in general is a bad thing. We should raise them differently um, just because I think it's wrong to raise an animal that's supposed to be lean. That's just that that was was is naturally intended to be a lean animal. We try to raise that animal fat. It just seems crazy. And then we take another fat animal like pork and we try to raise it lean. And we say it's the other white meat. It's lean. It just seems insane to me. Um, we'd be much better off with lean grass-fed beef and big fatty pork and eat more widely uh, 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 across the spectrum of vegetables and fruits and meats, you know, so not just eat these chicken things people eat all the time. Um, we'd be a lot healthier on our uh, – and I think the environment would be better. That's fine too. But – uh, I'm not. I don't want to eat anything out of. I don't want to eat any steak out of a test tube. No way. Not for me. Depends how good it gets. I've had one of those uh, fake burgers. I don't know what they. I mean, several years ago, they're coming up with something they called corn. Q U O R N. It was some no. fungal fungal version that was supposed to replace meat. I ate it. It was horrible. The gag reflex was unstanchable. But I've had these new burgers, and they're pretty good. I like them. If the price gets down to that of an ordinary burger, I can easily see swapping them out and not caring if they get as good with a proper seasoning, a little cheese, a little jalapeno, some bacon. It's good. And here's the, th here's the other part. While I don't have any problem eating meat, I don't have any problem being a carnivore, in general, in overall, in toto, if we raised, confined, and slaughtered fewer animals – I think that'd be better. And I'm not saying karmically, but if, if you know that the animal, that they have to come up with all of these ways to make sure that when they're leaving the cattle to the slaughter, that they don't get too anxious. And they've discovered that if they put them on these curved ramps where they can't actually see precisely where they're going, that they're a little bit more lulled yeah. into it before they get the nail to the brain pan. And so, you know, you say to yourself, well, that's great. We're caring people. We don't want the cows to actually be very fearful before the horrible things happens to them. But you just also feel that you know, I, I'm not all that upset about fewer animals being caged, confined, and being killed for my for my dinner. Okay, so and if they about, can come up with a simulacrum, I sure, sure. What, what about, about the, the, the rewilding movement? What about returning hundreds of thousands of acres of the Great Plains to its wild state, buffalo roaming again. Yeah. Would you be in favor of that and that we all get to go hunting more often and shoot our own meat more? Sure. Is that, you'd be in favor of that? Well, there's, there's more places in America where nobody is than there are places where somebody is. And people are kind of voting for their feet. They're kind of voting in back into urban, more dense locations than they were right. before. I mean, right. some people aren't, but there's like a whole lot of people there. And 
and um, you know, just it's natural. I mean, the human beings have naturally gravitated towards communities that are denser than communities that aren't. Um, and there are always people who don't want to live in that kind of environment. And there's plenty of room in America for though for everyone. I mean, there's plenty of room in America for all that and the bison. The problem is really that the federal government owns all that land. Um, uh, I mean, the federal government is the largest landholder in the country. So if if, if they wanted to do it, they should do it. Uh, I, they are trying to re introduce wolves into western Colorado. Um, so because the wolf has sort of disappeared and the idea is that if you could have wolves in western Colorado, then and there would be sort of an unbroken chain of wolves the way they used to be uh, from Canada to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the wolf is a really sort of powerful symbol of America and American wilderness and all sorts of things. And um, it would be great. Why not? And that's the interesting thing is that if you're of a particular mindset, you hate the violence that is wreaked upon animals uh, for our own food. But on the other hand, introduce the wolves because they'll keep the deer down by ripping their throats out. <laughs> if nature does it, it's okay. It's just great. Um, <laughs> right, and, right. Nature, and nature is horribly violent and uncaring. It's a, just a vast machine that's consuming and killing and doing all the rest of it and trying to kill us at the same time. But if you reintroduce the bison, I would like to know exactly how are you going to keep them off farmland? Because if you're a farmer and all of a sudden you see 500,000 of those guys coming across, uh, right. I mean, in North Dakota, you can see them coming an awful long way. I can just imagine I-94 backed up for 40 miles because there's a herd moving across and nobody can move. So, yeah, we love the idea of the uh, of the whole unspoiled Great Plains returning again with the bison as it was before. But it, um, probably not going to happen until you know, mankind has decided that we've left this planet. And uh, the bison will, will swarm again when Mount Rushmore has been eroded down to unreasonable, unrecognizable features, which probably might be by the end of this podcast if we keep talking. So I'd best wrap up. <laughs> Folks, butcher Blocks. Great place. Butcher Box will give you lots of great things to eat. Um, Grove.co, keep your house clean. And uh, anybody else that I mentioned here that we want to talk about? Guys? Helmsman. That's right. Helmsman, Helmsman. right. So the best shave you ever had in your life, go to helmsman.com. And again, it's a ricochet product, so uh, endorse it. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Go to iTunes uh, right now, promptly. And if you're not listening already, give the show 78 stars. We'll be very happy. And that'll keep come, people coming to Ricochet. And the more people who come to Ricochet and <clears throat> join Ricochet, right, Rob? Uh, the happier exactly we'll right. be. Because you want us to be here to discuss the 2020 election and the 22 and the 24 at infinitum. Uh, thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week. Next week. Next week, fellas. Daddy, you look like something's bothering you. It doesn't bother me, honey, that a piece of roast beef can't fix up. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Pops. A man works hard, then comes on home. Expects to find stew with that fine ham bone. He opens the door, then starts to look in. Say, woman, what's this stuff you cooking? Now that me and no. Potatoes, I just see right there like a green tomato. Here I'm waiting, palpitating with all that meat and no potatoes. All that meat and no potatoes. All that food to the alligators. Now hold me steady, I'm real. 
really ready. Now that meat and no potatoes. I don't think that peas are bad. With me, most anything goes. Yes, I looked in the pot. I'm fit to fight. Cause, woman, you know that mess just ain't right. Oh, that's all. Oh, all that meat and no potatoes just ain't right. Like green tomatoes. Woman, I'm steaming. Yeah, really screaming. All that meat and no Ricochet. Join the conversation. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger, four Pepsi, two cheap. Cheeseburger, 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 two Pepsi, one cheap. 